What is up, everyone? Welcome to Education Policy Weekly. I'm your host, John Phillips. Today is August 12th, 2020, and I'm so excited to be joined by Dr. Erica Buchanan-Rivera, who is the Chief Equity Officer at a district in Indiana. Today, we are continuing our conversation from last week about the pandemic and what leadership looks like in times of crisis. As I said, this is part two of our conversation, so if you want to check out part one, and you definitely should, go back on the feed for this show and listen to last week's episode. Just as a reminder, we recorded it back on July 24th. In addition to this podcast, I'm kicking off a newsletter called 5 by 5 where I deliver five things to read, write, hear, see, and do right to your inbox. Each post will be centered around a particular topic. And for this week's newsletter, I dove into what support looks like from as many angles as I could cram into the newsletter. You can find the link to subscribe in the description box for this episode or on my Twitter at ByJohnPhillips. I look forward to you joining our community. The media we consume defines us, so let's choose wisely. Before today's interview with Erica, let's talk briefly about what is going on in the world of education policy this week. As Congress stalled out on its discussions for another stimulus package in the wake of COVID-19, schools may be left in the lurch. While President Donald Trump passed executive orders this past weekend that took action, albeit mostly tepid action, on some of the big issues currently facing the country, those executive orders did not respond to the needs that exist across the country in schools in any way. In addition, the executive orders did not at all address the need for states to receive funding that they can allot where they need. And this adds to the already dire situation that many states are going to find themselves in heading into 2021 in terms of their finances. This is going to put a strain on what schools are going to be able to do in a time where every single school in this country needs more support, whether they are staying closed in terms of the school building itself and they are flushing resources into making sure that their virtual learning is as well supported as possible, or if they are reopening school buildings and making sure that students and staff are safe. Meanwhile, while some colleges like the University of South Florida push forward with reopening in person, others like Princeton and Penn are operating for the semester fully remotely. Penn took it a step further than their Ivy League counterpart by cutting tuition for the semester, albeit by a paltry 3.9%. For decades, university budgets have been bloated, allowing for plenty of positions and management that aren't tied to the primary functionality of the school itself, but COVID-19 will put that bloat to the test, as even the most elite colleges will bring in far less money this year and for the foreseeable future. Lastly, more than a quarter of families have opted out of the proposed New York City Public Schools reopening plan, choosing to stay remote rather than take part in the hybrid model the city is proposing. New York is the only district of the largest seven in the country to currently be moving forward with plans to start the year in a hybrid model. 
and the number of families who are going to opt into fully online learning will continue to increase as the window for signups has not yet closed. As we've noted on past episodes, people will be watching very closely to see what happens in New York City so that they can bolster whatever side of the school building reopening debate they fall on. That's it for the news. Before we dive into my discussion with Erica, please make sure that you are subscribed to the show on whatever podcast platform you use. And if you already subscribed and you love the show, please feel free to give it a five-star review on iTunes. And now, without further ado, my conversation with Erica. I'm thinking about the board meeting that happened in Philly last night for their district where there was six hours of testimony, like public, you know, comment by parents, teachers, students, and only one of those, like over a hundred comments was in favor of the district's reopening plan. And yet the board did not decide to take a vote and they instead recessed until next week. And so, Mm. you know, that's a very extreme version of what you're naming where, you know, if I, you, you have to be willing to take ownership of the actions that you commit to. Right. And so I think, Mm -hmm. I, I don't know where exactly the, the discomfort comes for leaders, right? I don't know if it's on the end of, I don't want to receive feedback and community input because that would mean that I need to change my practice. I don't know if it, if it happens there or if it happens, oh, wait, now that I've gotten this input, I need to put it into actionable steps. I don't know where that gap is, but I think that that gap really exists for leaders. And that's why, and this is not just a an admin uh, district level thing too. Teachers do this all the time. Like mm-hmm. teachers are afraid a lot of the time of asking for feedback from students because they don't want to hear that that unit was not as worthwhile <laughs> as they think. Like, no, that's ridiculous. So I, I it, it's... It's scary, though, that we need that transparency and that commitment to community now more than ever Mm -hmm. in this moment. Mm -hmm. We need leaders that are making decisions in a way that is not at all self-serving. We need to make sure that we are doing the least harm that we can possibly do in a moment that is built for loss and pain. Absolutely. And making sure that we are giving people, especially during this time where many have experienced losses, trauma, you know, we have to give people a space to heal, a space to grieve, a space to restore connections. And I think that is so important. And, you know, hitting on what you said, you know, we have to have leaders, once again, who are rooted in equity and who do not use that term as a buzzword. Yes. You know, I think especially during this time where anti-racist work in particular is trending, you know, that has infuriated me in yep. many ways. You know, this work is hard you know, generational work where we have to show up and we have to rededicate our lives every single day to the voices at the margins. You know, we have to shift power and resources 
to marginalized groups. We have to listen and employ mindful communication. This is not a trend. You know, this is work that we have to commit to every single day. And we have to critically examine our institutions and check our biases and engage in the internal mirror work. You know, it's so important to make sure that we are focusing on how to establish, you know, going back to your point of community, you know, how do we establish a community that is rooted in care and relationships and also accountability? You know, that's important. And that we're also committed to a process of learning and unlearning. And that is from, you know, the teacher level all the way to, you know, our school board members. And, and recognize that this is ongoing work. It's not a moment. You know, this is a movement. And we all have to be committed. And that idea of not only commitment, but also accountability is... Yes accountability in an actual true sense right and and a lot mm -hmm. of a lot of people are gonna you know outside of like the the ridiculousness that we're gonna see on like teachers pay teachers of this Ugh. you know anti <laughs> anti-racist anti worksheet that like come on now right but in addition i think that we're gonna see anti-racist work commodified in terms of the accountability structures of No Child Left Behind, or at least we're going to see them attempt to do something like that, where now all of a sudden I'm going to be evaluated on a rubric that is not actually grounded in anti-racism, but instead it's grounded in a leader wanting to maintain a new layer of control and kind of... And, and, kind of feed into whatever they believe is the trend of the day. But what we actually want is accountability for every single person who is a part of this process to recognize that the time for ignorance being allowed and acceptable is gone. That is gone out the window. Maybe once upon a time, there was a moment where you could have said, oh, well, I just didn't recognize. Well, guess what? you in this moment it is no longer in any way acceptable whether it ever whether it ever was at all now it can't be especially for people in leadership and so that accountability normally it works downward right you know the district holds principals accountable the the principal will hold teachers accountable teachers hold students accountable but and this seeps back into the idea of community the idea of collective action the beauty mm -hmm. of believing in community and believing that a collective push to improve society is how we get where we need to go. That means that I am just as accountable as a teacher to a student as that student is to their partner in lab and just as accountable as the principal at the school like it, it is no longer a hierarchical structure instead we all must recognize that we are in this together and that no one is too good for this work i agree i mean we we have to push the understanding that this work is for everyone and there are you know accountability measures i mean we have to ensure that we are all moving you know towards the goal of justice 
and it has to be articulated. You know, I'm seeing so many you know, groups that are emerging during this time that, you know, claim to be devoted to anti-racist work. And what I'm seeing is the, you know, planning of, you know, diversity celebrations of festivals and, and so many other things that are not really getting to the heart of justice, of accountability. And so we do have to really look at our spaces, look at our circles. We have to see how are people showing up in this work and be willing to have those conversations, you know, when it's not in alignment with the pathway that you know, ancestors have paved, you know, for, right. you know, black indigenous people of color specifically within anti-racist work, you know, to get to a place where we are not just naming those inequities, but we're eradicating them. And, and so it's so important to make sure that we are you know, centered in those communities of accountability where we can call in, you know, call out, you know, where we are engaged in a collective learning process, where we are listening to one another, where we're understanding each other's lived experiences. You know, and, and that doesn't happen without, you know, a dialogue, without being with people, you know, who have the same energy and motivation to, to grow, you know, in this work. And so you have to figure out, you know, who within your circle is going to push and challenge your thinking. And I think that's also important to consider. And it, it makes me think of this idea around cancel culture that has come up the last few weeks. And I, I think it, it ties into capitalism. It ties into white whiteness, white supremacy in, in that once upon a time, white elites, right? They told themselves mm -hmm. that they deserve their platform, right? Like that is a core piece of whiteness that I deserve everything that, that I get to be a part of. And what has happened throughout so many of the organizations that have built, been built throughout this country is we really have as a society since it's it's founding bought into this idea that we need firm leadership right and and that we need one person that in, in a given moment that that person knows how to make the tough call and as i've reflected this summer a lot about how capitalism and racism are very much intertwined it it makes me think now of how part of what makes people uncomfortable with collectivism is that all of a sudden that power that, that you think you deserved you to be part of a collective means to recognize that your word doesn't carry the weight that you once mm -hmm. believed that it did. And so, you know, I, I, I appreciated you earlier answering the question that I asked with a hopeful perspective and, you know, in, in my, in my moments, <laughs> I can do that too. But, you know, I, I think it's also important to recognize that in the same way that, that, 
anti-racism isn't a trend, which it's not. It is lifelong work for people, and we need to very much respect anyone new to this work, especially, Mm -hmm. needs to respect that there's a long wave of people that have been doing this long before it was what was comfortable and safe. Because I hate to break it to them, but when Coca-Cola and all of these other companies are putting out Black Lives Matter ads, that means that public opinion has shifted from that idea being the one that could never be said to it being weird if you weren't making that statement. So I don't care about statements, right? right? I, I care deeply about being invested in the work. And so I, I really, I hope in this moment that we recognize that whiteness, white supremacy, patriarchy, capitalism, all of these forces, and they are forces, right? Like you could make Star Wars trilogies about each and every one of them. <laughs> They are not going to go without a fight. And so in the same way that I really hope that we see leadership recognize that what we need in this moment is to buy into collectivism, to feed into a belief in the community that you've committed yourself to lead. In the same way, we we need to be cognizant of the fact that there are going to be a lot of leaders that in this moment are going to be tightening their grip at a moment when they need to be letting go of it a little bit. And so I I think that, that people that have been in this work for a while recognize that, but people that are new to it, even ones that are committed, I think it's going to be a shock when, when they start to do, you know, a deeper level of learning behind whatever article they clicked on and and read, you know, one and a half books of the Mm -hmm. 10, 10 books listed is they're going to be shocked when they recognize that we weren't joking when we said that white supremacy is an iceberg that we don't know how far down it goes. <laughs> like, we, like mm-hmm. that wasn't a lie. And so I, I, I think that there are, there's an opportunity now to catalyze the people that are, are new to this. And I, I hope that, in five years, we look back and we recognize that this is this was a catalyzing moment where people bought into the work. I hope. And, and I hope as well. But I think, John, you are seeing just as much as I am already the backsliding you know, from allies yep. you know, who are new to this work, who are not necessarily seeing their footing mm-hmm. when it comes to actions surrounding racial justice. And we're seeing their allyship is seasonal. You know, we show up when things are catastrophic, when things happen, but as soon as we, we see perhaps, you know, minimal you know, shifts or, mm-hmm. or I would say, things that aren't rude and injustice, but we are seeing various actions, you know, such as street signs and we're changing our profile pictures. I mean, we're, we're doing all those, all the superficial stuff. Yes. All the superficial things. And so we take that as, as action. 
And then when the hashtags start fading away, you, you slowly see people slipping back into the status quo. And it, it's unfortunate, but that's already happening now. And I think about, for example, you know, Kendi's work and some of the quotes that mm-hmm. I've been able to pull from his recent piece, How to Be an Anti-Racist. And you know, he talks openly that you know, this work requires persistent self-awareness. You know, constant right. self-criticism and regular examination. And so you cannot read a book, you know, to your point and check the box and say you're an anti-racist, you know, or go to one workshop or, you know, perhaps join a book study right. and believe that you have arrived in anti-racist work. You know, this is not a trend. It's not a phase. It's not a moment. It's not seasonal. We need you to show up every single day. And it's so important for people to understand during this pandemic and in time where we're seeing you know, such strongholds of, of racism that never really went away, but you know, it's certainly been amplified you know, during this time, that it's all connected. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's connected. And so when leaders are thinking about, you know, reopening plans, you know, circling back to that, we can't say we're focusing on, you know, school safety Mm -hmm. and therefore we have to leave the anti-racist work, you know, at the wayside. It's all tied together. You know, we have to elevate anti-racist work within schools. We have to think about the students who have been impacted during this time. And even, like I said, prior to the pandemic, because quite frankly, we know that there were some students who had their safe space, as I said earlier, at home. Yep. Because they didn't have to be in positions where they were spirit murdered or where they couldn't see themselves reflected in curriculum or where they had to operate you know, through fogs and microaggressions you know, throughout the entire school day. So we have to elevate this conversation hand in hand you know, with the global pandemic, and then also recognize how, even from a health point of view, you know, how the, you know, disparities, you know, of COVID are also a direct result from systemic racism. Right. So it's so important to make sure that we're all leaning into these conversations. You know, as Angela Davis states, it's not enough to be a non-racist. We have to be anti-racist. And we have to also, as you know, we States often, you know, equip our students and parents, you know, with the tools to combat racism, you know, and discrimination and to really help our society get to a place where we can, you know, partake in collectivism and elevate these conversations to ensure that all people have an equal footing. Well, when we talk about leadership, and that's been the through line through this conversation, I am proud to be able to have you as a leader in this work because the voice that you have is used and and, and put to good use. And I think that with more voices like yours being elevated, we're in good shape to continue this fight. So Erica, thank you so much for joining me today. I think this was a... A great conversation, but also a reminder that this work is ongoing and it is not enough. Whatever your checklist is, throw it out. There's no checklist for this (laughs) stuff. It is just a constant reevaluation to commit to this work. So thank you. 
Thank you. That was my discussion with Dr. Erica Buchanan-Rivera. I am so glad that she was willing to join me. I think it was a really awesome conversation, and I hope that you think so too. If you did enjoy this episode, please make sure that you are subscribed to the show, and you can also leave a five-star review on iTunes. Until next week, class dismissed.